Valentine's Day is in just a few days. And really, there's kind of a lot of mystery around it. Uh, you know, where did it come from? Why does it get celebrated? And it's certainly become very commercialized. But let me see if I can maybe answer some questions or maybe create some more questions, I guess. Um, St. Valentine was a Catholic saint uh, from the 3rd century Rome. The Emperor Claudius uh, said that single men made better soldiers than married men. And so uh, because of that, he outlawed marriage. And uh, Valentine, uh, he decided to do weddings anyways. And so um, that didn't go over too well with, with the emperor. Um, there's a, it's called Lupercalia. It's a pagan festival in February. It's celebrating uh, spring and fertility. Uh, and women's names were put into a bag or a box or something. And the men would draw a name and they would partner with that woman for a year. Now, sometimes they'd get married, but a lot of times they didn't. Uh, you just were stuck with that woman for a year. She was stuck with that man for a year. Uh, in 1375, uh, English poet Geoffrey uh, Chaucer wrote the first Valentine's poem. And the first Valentine's card was in 1415 by Charles, Duke of Orleans, to his wife. Uh, he was in prison as a political prisoner. And so he uh, had this card made up and sent to his wife. And you, you can't forget Cupid, you know, that naked, chubby little cherub. Uh, it kind of gets its roots from uh, the Roman god uh, with Greek mythology roots of uh, Eros, a god of love. So what are you going to do for those you love on Valentine's Day? Me? Probably nothing. Uh, I believe that it's more important to show your love every day and not on a day that uh, card shops and candy shops and, and all have decided that it would be a, a good thing for you to do. Um, being a, a last man standing fan uh, a few seasons ago, Tim uh, would never celebrate Valentine's Day. He thought it was very commercialized and all that. But he wanted to get Vanessa some roses on that day to uh, prove that he still loved her in spite of all of that. And so it turned into a half-hour fiasco anyways uh, because she didn't know where they came from. And so what's the most important thing to remember about love? 1 John 4, 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Hmm. I wonder if you can set up your spell check for the King James Bible, because certainly needed it for that. Let's pray. Father, we just give you thanks that you are love, period. And just like it, it told us in uh 1 John, that if somebody 
doesn't love, they don't really know you because you are love. And so, Father, help us to know that love and to show that love to others. So, Lord, help us with this message that, Lord, we will get what you want us to out of it and just let your Holy Spirit guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you want to know about love, where wouldst thou goest? Where else? 1 Corinthians 13, duh. Now, the King James Bible in 1 Corinthians 13 does not use the word love, but uses the word charity. Now, charity and love are both uh, the same word in Greek. So I'm not sure why they decided to use it because other places they use the word love where they could have used the word charity, uh, but they didn't. So I'm really not sure what the, the translator's thinking was at that time. But I want to give you 1 Corinthians 13. This is from the message. Um, I'm using that just because I just really like the way it sounds, the way it explains it and lays it out there in a way that I can understand it. So it goes like this. If I speak with human eloquence in angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty, great, rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake and be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep a score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incomplete will be canceled. When I was an infant in my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like any infant. When I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We will see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly, just as he knows us. But for now, until that completeness, we have three things to lead, to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly, and the best of the three is love.
okay? Or if you're needing it, it's faith, hope, and love. Those three. To me, that's the best explanation of love that there is. Now, you have to take into account that Paul wasn't writing this as an intimate song to his lover. Okay, we've just assumed that and we use it in that context. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? Because love needs to be all of those things. So we've just decided to use it. I mean, I think I've been asked to have that read at just about every wedding that I've done. Even I had it asked uh, to be read at uh, a few funerals as well. But if we could all show that kind of love, wow, the world that we're living in would be totally, totally different. Now that we all have a handle on what love is, I want to talk about marriage. Okay, the Bible gives a lot of info on that topic. Very, very good advice, very good instructions. Now, maybe you've been married just a short time, maybe a year or two. Maybe you've been married, you know, 10, 15 years. Maybe you've been married 44 years, like my wife and I will be in, in June, or 60 years. You know, maybe you're engaged and, you know, you're busy planning your wedding. Or maybe you're single and hopeful. Or maybe you're single and hopeless. Or maybe you're single and that's the way you love it and just plan on staying that way for the rest of your life. But whatever your status, I think you're going to get something out of what I've got to say. <clears throat> so we're going to look at, the I think, the number one source in Scripture about marriage. Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. Now, it's important to read this, to study this, and to know the whole thing. Okay, some people like to pick and choose what they want, but I'm not going to do that. Okay, so let me back up a little bit to verse 15. And all of this is going to be from the New Living Translation. But this is what Paul is explaining before we get into today's scripture. He says, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns, in spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of that passage I'm going to come back to another day. Not today. But what Paul is trying to do is to help the people understand how to live as believers. Okay, at that time, the city of Ephesus was an important port. <coughs> Excuse me. There was a lot of trade that was being done there. There was lots of different cultures, people coming in and out from all over. 
lots of foreign gods, lots of idol worship. And Paul's message is, we don't live like that. Okay, we're Christians, we're believers. We don't live like they do. So Paul gave them some do's and some don'ts. Okay, he said, don't be a fool. He said, don't act thoughtlessly. You know, think about what you're doing. You know, hang out with the wise people, learn from them, and act like they act. Okay, and don't get drunk on wine. You know, how stupid is that? But then he gave them some do's when he said, be wise. Okay, be filled with the Holy Spirit and sing to the Lord. Okay, that is how Christians are to live. Okay, that's how Christians were to live almost 2,000 years ago. That's how Christians are to live today. So let's move on to where we're headed with this. Beginning in verse 21. Okay, I'm going to break it down as we go along. Because Paul says, And further, submit one another to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his holy body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. I can almost hear the moans and the groans coming over the airways. Okay, and rightfully so, if we stop there. And some men like to stop there. You know, they'll take out their Bible and, you know, they'll thumb through it and they'll, they'll finally come to this and they'll say, well, listen, listen to what Paul says here. Listen to how, how you're supposed to be my wife. It says you're supposed to submit to me because I'm the head. Well, in verse 21, Paul is saying, that we should submit to other Christians. What does that mean? Or what does that look like? My interpretation? We need to be open, to be mindful of others and their ideas. And, you know, to, to listen to somebody else's point of view concerning Scripture or concerning the church, the body itself. Now, that doesn't always happen in churches, okay? Because I have not been in a church where it's happened, but I've heard of churches where, you know, there's name-calling and stuff being tossed around and threats being made and everything else in board meetings of some kind. Okay? And that's not the way the body's supposed to be acting, Okay? Well, let's move on to the heavy stuff. Verse 22, the wives submitting to the husband's stuff. Now, if you only read verses 21 to 24, that could present a problem. Okay, why should the woman be expected to submit to the husband? Is he wiser? Is he a better person? Is he fairer? The best answer is, well, 
um, maybe so. I, I don't know. I guess in some cases, I, yeah, I, I don't know. But the answer is yet to come. Verse twenty-three says, "A man is to be the head, like Jesus is the head of the church." That's quite a role to take on. That's an awesome responsibility. And most men do not realize the position that has been given to them at the altar. They are accepting the same responsibility that Jesus has. Now, I would try to explain that in premarital counseling, but when you're doing premarital counseling to non-Christians, it doesn't really mean too much to them. But most men would probably say, I didn't sign up for that. No way. But yes, you did. Too bad nobody told you that before. Okay? That's just exactly what you signed up for. Verse 24. This starts to give us some understanding that comes in the next verses that the church submits to Christ. And because the church submits to Christ, wives should submit to husbands. But men, it doesn't stop there. Okay? That's not the end of the passage. That's not the end of the story. That's just getting into it. Verse 25, just the first sentence. It says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Okay? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Pay attention, both of you. How much does Jesus love the church? The rest of verse 25 and verse 26 tells us he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Jesus Christ gave up his life for her. He gave up his life for his church. That is how husbands are to love their wives, period. So often, I don't see it. I don't hear it. I hear husbands disrespecting their wives. I hear husbands making fun of their wives, pointing out their flaws, making rude and unnecessary remarks, putting them down. I see husbands flirting with other women lusting after other women, making fools of them. Does that sound like Jesus to you, husbands? Does that look like something Jesus would be doing to you, husbands? Hmm. And I'm talking about men that claim to be Christians here, okay? I'm not talking about anybody else. I'm talking about men that claim to love Christ, that are doing these things towards their women, towards their wife. Now, 
maybe when it came down to it, those husbands would lay down their lives. Okay, if, if the house was on fire, you know, the husband would, you know, go back in and find his wife and bring her out. Or if there's a car accident, you know, that he's going to do what he can to, to make sure that she's okay. Or if you're, you know, going to your car in a parking lot and you get mugged or assaulted, you know, that the husband is going to do whatever he can to save his wife. You know, probably most husbands would do that. But in verse 26, it says that Jesus laid down his life to make the church holy and clean. That's not talking about an act of heroism. It's talking about a natural thing for Jesus to do. Because Jesus is doing that in preparation for the wedding that's to come someday, hopefully soon. Okay, in verse 27, it says, He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Jesus is perfect. Jesus was a perfect lamb for the sacrifice without blemish. Should the bride of Jesus be less than perfect? No way. Okay, that was the reason for the sacrifice, to be able to bring perfection to the bride. Verse 28, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. Okay, men, some, well, many of us don't look like we love our bodies, myself included. Well, I could say, obviously, I, I love my wife a lot because there's a lot of me. You know, it's those skinny guys that they don't love their wives as much as me because there's a lot more of me than there is them. So it shows I love my wife even more. That's a crock, isn't it? Nice try. Showing more love to my wife would be taking care of my body. And Paul goes on with this thought in verse 29, because he says, no one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. That needs to be our goal, making the effort to be more like Christ in our relationship with our wife. Verse 30 really tells us why we need to be making a better effort all the way around. Men and women, okay? Not just talking to the men. And we are members of his body. Both the husband and the wife, men and women. Plain and simple. If we call ourselves Christians or believers or Christ followers or born again or whatever label we like to put on ourselves, the number one thing, we are members of his body. In verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, when he says, As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, 
and the two are united into one. That's kind of a hard concept to understand. But one we need to remember. As a head, I need to remember that I'm making decisions. And it's not just about me. It affects the whole of me, which includes my wife. People sometimes refer to their other half or their better half without realizing that they're speaking biblically. If some knew that, they wouldn't say it. Okay, but the two now become one. Verse 32 again shows a connection that Paul is trying to make. He says, this is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. I think this is Paul's way of admitting that he doesn't fully understand this either, okay? Because, you know, you're still two individuals. You've got two sets of gifts and talents and desires, you know, two sets of old habits, two sets of likes and dislikes, but we're not referring to the flesh. We're talking about the spirit. In the spirit, you become one. That's a difficult part of doing weddings for non-believers because they just cannot begin to fathom that. Verse 33 is Paul's conclusion to this passage. He says, So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. My conclusion if a man loves his wife as Christ loves the church, okay, a man shows that kind of love towards his wife that Christ shows towards the church, any woman would be willing to be submissive to him. Okay, if I loved my wife the way Christ loves the church, Diane would have no problem being submissive in every part of our marriage, every part of our lives. And I know that I certainly don't show my wife that kind of love. Sometimes, maybe once in a while, but not the way I should. But she would be receiving love, any wife, like she could never have begun to imagine. Now, if you want to turn to 1 Peter 3, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to go there. But 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7, really confirms Paul's thoughts on all of this, if you need something more. But I have an assignment for you. If you're married, or you're engaged, or you're courting, if you know what that means, uh, sit down with your significant other, and read the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, depending on your translation. It's, uh, I think, eight chapters, not that long. Maybe just do one a day. But some of it, it sounds a little strange, okay? And you may get a few laughs. I remember Diane and I did a skit on this in church, and 
you know, the, the lines that the man had in that, you know, really were different than the, the woman's lines. But uh, just think of the time and the culture that this was written. And you'll see that it's really not that far-fetched, at least not for them. I want to share with you the words of a hymn. You maybe not heard it or seen it before. If you're a United Methodist, it's in your hymnal, page 643. Um, but it was written by Brian Wren, and it really has some good words for us. Five verses. It says, When love is found and hope comes home, sing in me glad that two are one. When love explodes and fills the sky, Praise God and share our Maker's joy. When love has flowered in trust and care, build both each day that love may dare to reach beyond home's warmth and light to serve and strive for truth and right. When love is tried as loved ones change, hold still to hope, though all seems strange. Till ease returns and love grows wise through listening ears and opened eyes. When love is torn and trust betrayed, pray strength to love till torments fade. Till lovers keep no score of wrong, but hear through pain love's Easter song. Praise God for love, praise God for life, in age or youth, in husband-wife. Lift up your heart, let love be fed through death and life in broken bread. If you want to look that up, it's When Love is Found by Brian Wren. Got some great words in there. Let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks for your word and the truth that there is there. Some of it that we're familiar with and we, we really like and we want to read it and and make it part of our lives, and Lord, some of it that eh, we're not too sure about. But Lord, it's your word. And Father, we need to know that it's true and right, and we need to follow what it is that you have to say. <coughs> Excuse me. And so I know that <coughs> some of our brothers and sisters may be struggling with some of this as husbands and wives. But Lord, let them go over it again and again, and see what your word really holds for us in this. <coughs> How you expect us to be living our lives. How you expect our marriage to be going. That people need to look at us and see you. They need to look at how us as husbands love our wives and see Jesus. Because that may be the one thing that leads a non-believer to you. <coughs> so Father... I just praise you for your word. And Lord, I lift up anyone that may be listening to this that doesn't know you. You know, maybe they're single, maybe they're married, maybe they've been married several times, maybe their marriage is struggling. Lord, help them to, to come to you and to know that there's hope and there's help and there's strength in you and in your word. That, Father, that they, they need to begin a relationship with you and that that will change their relationship with their spouse or their spouse to be. So Father, I just 
pray that you would just um, put a burden on the hearts of those that, that don't know you, that they would see that, that you are what's lacking in their life, that you are what's lacking in their marriage. And Lord, I lift up anyone that's maybe married to a non-believer and is, is struggling with this, uh, that, Father, you'll help them to, to not get discouraged and that they'll lift up their spouse and that they'll pray for their spouse and that they'll set a, a Christian example that their spouse wants what they have, that they see that their life is different and that they'll want to begin that relationship and put you in the center of it, which will make a complete difference in the relationship that they have right now. So, Father, if there's someone that needs you, Lord, let them pray like this. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus, who died on the cross for my sins. I know that I need Jesus. I know that I need forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. Lord, love me. Lord, take me just as I am. In Jesus' name, amen.